At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. With the UFO sightings, miraculous water that heals the sick, and a mysterious island that appears to pop in and out of existence, the Mexican state of Carantaro contains all the magic of Mexico within its borders. Forgotten stories of UFOs. Flying saucers, cylindrical objects, ores, and UAPs. These are some of these terms used to describe the unexplainable mysterious flying crafts that have been spotted in Mexican skies for most of the 20th century up until the present day. With the advent of the camera phone and with the technology readily accessible to Mexicans today, YouTube and other parts of the internet are flooded with countless videos of UFOs over Mexico. Before the built-in camera phone and even the older and rarer camcorder, people had a difficult time recording anomalies in the sky. In the 1970s, for example, a person seeing a UFO would have been considered very lucky, lucky to have had a camera in hand at the ready to document a sighting. As a con consequence of there being a little photographic evidence in existence from that time, all that has been passed down through decades from the 70s are stories based on eyewitness testimonies and some of that poorly researched or and some of that poorly researched or explained. An interesting wealth of information on a UFO phenomenon exists from the decade in Mexico that few people know about. Here are two stories on Mexican UFO encounters from the 1970s. The first sighting took place on the outskirts of the city of Tuluca, located in the Mexican <coughs> state of in the state of Mexico proper for friends, young men in their late teens and early twenties went for a leisurely walk through the streets in the early evening. The date was Sunday, March 25th, 1978. At around 6 o'clock, they found themselves engulfed in a massive cloud of dust. This phenomenon was not localized. It was a large dust storm that descended upon the city with a vengeance much like the Haboobs of the Middle East and North Africa.
The four friends wanted a better view of the storm, so they hopped in the car. A typical Mexican made VW bug and drove to an out overlook in the area. From this overlook, the group had a great view of the show of dust descending upon the city of Garantara. As he sat outside and watched, the clouds seemed more black than sandy brown, which indicated that it carried rain with it. It was not merely a dust storm. As the skies got worse, the four friends retreated to the safety of the Volkswagen. Large drops pelted the windshield, lightning crashed out of the sky, and the wind blew with great ferocity. Dust and other large pieces of debris swirled around the tiny car. The four decided to hunker down and wait out the storm at Tuluca. At least the radio in the car worked and they could listen to music despite the chaos around them. One of the friends suddenly noticed a bright red light in the rear view mirror of the car. They immediately thought it was the lights came from a police car, but couldn't believe that the police cruiser would be out at the remote overlook at a time at that time of night and during a bad storm. A forward noticed that the red object began rising, and at that same time, the light started to move. The radio in the car went dead. Light hovered over the hills, and their friends sat transfixed in their car, just watching the light. The only witness in this event would go on to go on the record, and researchers was also the oldest of the four friends at age 22. His name was Jose Brito. Right from the get-go, Brito told investigators that it was very difficult to get a really clear view of objects emanating the red light because of the storm. Object also... Was also emitting a type of smoke that swirled around it and made it even harder to see. Nonetheless, Brito went on to describe what he and his friends saw the best he could. He said the object was about the size of a bus, with a red chrome spear on top. The spear had a ring of small portals. A bluish light shone from these portals, while they appeared to be some, while they appeared to be some sort of windows. They could not see any occupants of the craft peering through them. Brito also noticed what seemed to be landing gear or legs sticking out of the bottom of the craft. Although the object was not near the ground. Along with these legs on the bottom of the craft, there is some sort of engine that spewed jets of fire and made a thunderous noise. From his testimony, to researchers, Brito stated, It spun so quickly that we lost sight of the, of the details. We couldn't see it. We couldn't see if it had retreated its legs or closed its portals. All we could see was a source of light suspended in the air. When all took off, the storm intensified, even sending sizable rocks flying in the direction of the little Volkswagen. The four friends sat in the car, terrified, when they would not be a hit. They would not be hit with a larger debris, pieces of debris. When the object disappeared, the storm died down, and the raging windows winds were replaced by a gentle rain. When the rain ceased, the young man got out of the car. And walked over the area behind the car when they originally saw where they originally saw the object. As they walked closer to the site, they noticed the ground getting warmer, and they also noticed burn marks in the lower brush and shrubs. Uh, did anyone else 
Did anyone else see the strange object or Toluca? There were a few other witnesses in the city who described the craft as a bright and colorful spinning top, but there were no photographs. Although moderately investigated, no one knows what the craft was or how it was related to the terrible dust storm that night in March of 1978. Wow. So, uh, first off, uh, so it's like, no. I bust a top one and it spins. Obviously, giving off like some kind of like radiation. Because there's heat of the air around it. Or it could be like from the engine. Yeah. <clears throat> we have another sighting come up. All right, the second sighting. The second story hails from the Mexican state of Quintero in the small town of San Joaquin. An article written in Dario de Quintero, May 7th, 1975, told of how four objects were spotted over town sometime between 9 and 10 p.m. on May 6th. Among the witnesses was Ricardo Ledesma, a local tax collector and district attorney who was quoted in an article. He said he saw four strange objects which flew at an altitude higher than that of private planes. His wife had called him to the window to see those unidentified craft. She had seen the objects for, for longer than her husband and told reporters. I had a chance to see the objects twice since they flew around the community a few times. They flew in from the east and returned in the same direction. Shesso said that they looked like the small saucers used in old scales or balances attached to chains used to weigh things. Another witness, town councilor member Manuel Martin, Martinez, said basically the same thing. Objects looked like small pans. He also added that they made a slight buzzing sound. Probably from their engines. What's something kind of like? Uh, yeah, another witness, a woman named Guadalupe Salvador, told reports this. At first, I saw what lights that appeared. I saw at first I saw what lights that appeared to be stars. But as they drew closer and flew overhead, I saw there were circular objects like weighing platforms with dangling wires, gray in color. The next more next month, June of 1975. Strange anomalies in the sky returned to the small town of San Joaquin. Witnesses reported seeing a massive flying, uh, massive object flying low and slowly over town hall, almost clipping a radio tower. This object was similar to one seen the previous month, with its disc-shaped appearance, like the saucers of old-fashioned scale. This large object had lights coming off the top of it that converged to a point which made the craft look like, look even more like a balance of a scale suspended by chains. This bizarre craft had hundreds of witnesses view the phenomenon. Well, The sighting caught the attention of the famous 
paranormal researcher Salvador Fredo Temperis, a Spanish-born former Jesuit who was, was expelled from the order in 1959 and devoted the rest of his life to exploring paranormal phenomenon. Fredo uh, wrote over 30 books, most of them covering the complex subject of UFOs and how they relate to religion and human history. While in Mexico, he founded an organization called the Mexican Institute of Paranormal Studies. Fredericksto mentioned the 1975 San Joaquin Atero UFO signings in the 1984 book, Tia de los Dios, which translates to in English as defending themselves from or aware of the gods. He focused on why eyewitness accounts of the incidents. Here is an expert from his book. One day in 1975, a young man from a humble background told me how two months before at night, he had witnessed a UFO flying very slowly and at a low altitude over his house, located on the outskirts of town. Excited by what he had to see, he ran after the UFO, following its trajectory into a deep gully outside the city, not far from his home. When he reached the gully's edge, he saw a large lens-shaped object on the ground emitting a fantastic white light. Frightened by the sight, he crouched amid some shrubs from his hiding place. He was able to see several midgets with objects resembling flashlights in their hands. These flashlights emitted thin, concentrated beams of light, and the midgets were having a good time hacking down plants with them, intentionally cutting one down after another. After a while, my friend, who had remained concealed and motionless, found a shrub, saw the objects change color, and moments later, began to extend very slowly, balancing itself repeatedly some five meters over the ground, until it shot off heavenward. While engaging in this back-and-forth motion, the object struck a large cactus and toppled it. Months later, I was occupied <coughs> the old man to sight, I asked him to show me where the cactus had been felled. We held in that direction, and sure enough, there lay a large half on this side of the, the, the cactus, uh, cactus. Despite the time that it had gone by, we were able to see without any difficulty the large rounded imprints of more than one landing on the gully floor. Later on, back at his home, a young man gave me fused rocks that he had collected from the landing marks. While they were so hot, he had placed them in a jar, and after a while, inside of the jar had been covered in yellowish dust that resembled sulfur. All these details are more or less common to many other UFO landings. But we, what was new to me here was the half desiccated coyote I covered not far from one of the landing sites. What attracted my curiosity was certain strange curses that could not be made out on the animal carcass. Strange of all was the fact that the entire body had been run like a rag is run to extract water from it. Yet, in spite of this, its bones remained unbroken. Furthermore, it was also interesting to see that no ants or any insects whatsoever could be found beneath or around this carcass. While there was a good amount of animal's flesh still stuck to the bones, it had dried up to un- up in an unusual manner without rotting and disintegrating as a commonly case for animals have died in the field. End of quote.
Well, that's very strange. It's, it's maybe not if it's this desert. Um, maybe it's like the sun is dragged up real fast. A possible explanation. Maybe. I don't know. I get all the I knew like how hot the hot there in the area is it hot. How hot, hot and hot and dry is it? Maybe this could be dried up. Possibly. Okay. <laughs> strange how that no like insect came around it though. It's very strange. An often overlooked decade, nineteen seventies. As many UFOs cases that are due for a second look by researchers today, old newspapers and other archival sources may provide a fertile territory for modern-day investigators to explore and learn from. Until we can access their findings, we must wait and wonder the final witness in the night skies. Well, that's pretty cool. What's up next? Some miraculous, miraculous hailing waters of Tecote. Next. In May of 1991, on a ranch outside town of Tecote in the Mexican state of Cantaro, <clears throat> a sick dog, took a drink from a small puddle near a well. Ranch owner Jesus Can Lemon did not expect the dog to live much longer, but within days of drinking the water, the dog had such vibrancy and energy as it had had in its youth. The rancher, not believing what he himself had witnessed, decided to experiment with the well water. He had people with a list coming to the ranch and drink. <clears throat> the water. Hold on, check out. Fucking nut. Hold Fucking nut over here. Okay. You have people with well, those come to the ranch and drink the water, and those people report almost a miraculous healing result. Word got out, and within months, there were lines to see the water with people coming from all over the world, looking for cures for everything from migraine headaches to diabetes, from high cholesterol to even cancer and AIDS. Senor Cahin had inherited the property from his parents and lived a comfortable life on the ranch. Because of this, he felt no need to charge people from for the water, although he did seek to limit the amount visitors could take away more for time and traffic concerns than anything. With help from the town, Cahian developed systems to handle the thousands of people who would come to this property per day, <clears throat> seeking a miracle. A triage system developed with those with serious conditions shuffled to a shorter and faster line. It was reported that money came from the national and state governments to pay for the huge still water containers to house the well water after a local priest sent a Tecolote water to Army Hospital and cured 600 people. As with shrines in Mexico, small enterprises in the town popped up to serve the multitudes of people. 
Tonsils sold food, plastic jugs, mementos, and so on. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Porters earned the equivalent of a few cents for hauling water for people too infirm to wait in line or too deliberate to carry the water back to the cars themselves. Ken never made one centebo or cent on this whole phenomenon. While the well attracted many people who ascribe religious or spiritual properties to water, and many and many members of the clergy, from nuns and priests, and even Catholic bishop, praise the water for its divine aspects. Ken never claimed that there's anything supernatural behind the cures, and relief supposedly attributed to wells coming a well on the property. He was quoted as saying in the Washington Post article from January 1992, water weighs less than H2O. This is a mysterious theory for science why it weighs less. After testing it, local health officials declared the water safe to drink. They say that confirmed the health and safety standards to comparable to well water. Throughout the state of Carantero, they could find no other special properties to the water despite the ranchers' claims that it's somehow and it's somehow lighter than average. Thomas University of Carantero performed a series of scientific tests on the water and found nothing unusual about it. No strange chemical properties, nothing special at all. No amount of scientific tests would seem to stop the luge of people from inundating the small town of Ticolete, whatever. A UK nurse named Gil Fry, employed by the organization Share International, visited Ticolete in July of 1992. During the height of the water pilgrimages, and kept a diary of her experiences. A December issue of the Share International Journal published Nurse Fry's account. Here is what she had to support in her own words. As a professional nurse, I was fascinated by reports of Tuglote water having healed so many ailments, including diabetes, epilepsy, arthritis, cancer, and even AIDS. Having worked with patients for 10 years, have suffered the pain and anguish of such disease, the idea of finding a cure or partial cure was indescribably exciting. It was thus that I set out in July this year on a quest to Mexico to collect the miracle water from the Colette. From what I had read, I was expecting some hardship, at the very least to wait in line for three or four days at nights and near tropical temperatures and took me with a comprehensive survival kit Mosquito net, sunscreen, bedding, etc. arrived prepared for the eventuality. I had also read that each person's water ration was generally three liters and brought along several plastic containers in the event my expectations could not 
have been marked wrong. A wonderfully kind colleague of Benjamin Kramer in Mexico City took charge of me, drove me to Colette, and speaking the, the local language, which I do not, overcame each barrier and problem. Every door seemed wide open. My three-day stint turned into a mere three-hour wait. My water ration increased to from 3 to 38 liters, and more wonderful still, I witnessed the most extraordinary photograph possibly exist in existence, which confirmed everything I had believed in the last in for the last six years. Since May 1991, three million people have been to Ducolote, and at least six million people have drank the water. The ranch owner, Mr. Cahan, keeps the registration files of every visitor, some of whom had traveled from far as Europe and Russia. Many Mexican government officials, politicians, and artists have been seen waiting in this queue which varies in size from 5,000 to 10,000 daily. Perhaps a bit wary from the crowds, Cahan closed his ranch to the public for two weeks <coughs> during, Eastern, during Easter of 1993. After he reopened his ranch, Cahan saw a market decrease in crowds. The few years, the people seeing a clear from America's water dwindled to a small trickle. In January 2015, the Mexican newspaper El Universal went to Tecolote to see the current state of the town and to investigate what happened to Jesus Cahin and his special well. <clears throat> what they found was shocking. Cahin had passed away in 2004 and ironically from an aggressive form of cancer. His widow sold the property and in other words, the Casillo family had no plans to open the property to public ever again. The town of Tecolote, according to this paper, seemed like a ghost town. With many abandoned buildings and other dilapidated structures, after the boom ended in the mid-1990s, the town economy ruined. Many people left Colote to find work in the capital city of Quintero or in other larger Mexican cities. An irony of ironies, during the early universal investigation into the town in early 2015, they found that Colote had been without municipal water services for several months. The main water source having been all exhausted, with only a scant few deeper private wells giving water. The town that had been known internationally for its water was effectively all dried up. And one of the magic and miracles supposedly experienced at this place in the mid-early 1990s, thousands of people claimed cures of terminal illness. Many more claimed the water helped them with minor conditions, even though there was no scientific basis for any of these claims. Do we have on our hands, genuine examples of true power of belief in the mind's important role in the healing process? Or do those making the pilgrimage to Tulotate experience true miracles? I would say it's probably like. Uh, what's called? Okay. Let's see, both Yeah. Maybe it's real. I don't know what. I can claim everything. But what? We have a story of a... Well, we have a story of a disappearing island here coming up. It's a... I love Prima Mexico's disappearing island coming up. On the Mexican Cantero Highway on August 4th, 1998, 
A semi-truck slammed into the side of a car carrying two passengers. One, the driver, was unharmed. The other person in the car was killed instantly. The passenger was a 74-year-old Jose Angel Davila, a Mexican senator, former head of the Mexican political party known as the PAN, while holding many offices and posts in this long and distinguished political career. Senator Conchillo was perhaps best known for what other otherwise would have been mounted to a footnote to history. He was a tireless offender of the existence of Isla Prima, a small island about 100 kilometers off the coast of the Yucatan, which had appeared on maps off and on across the centuries in recent times had not been confirmed as real. Conchillo reasoned that the island was proven if the rise was proven real, it would extend Mexican maritime territorial claims and much far much claims much farther in the Gulf of Mexico and secure Mexico's rights to billions of barrels of petroleum and untold mineral resources. Then expanded exclusive economic zone or EEZ of Mexico, Senator Conchillo advocated discovering the island, building a lighthouse or some other Improvements there, establishing a permanent Mexican presence on on Bahama, all while Mexico was negotiating with the United States on how the two countries would divvy up the Gulf of Mexico's resources. In September of 1997, the Secretary of Navy and the Mexican government sent an oceanographic vessel to try to locate the island, covering over 300 square nautical miles in the general area of where. Ayala Bermuda had appeared on various maps. They found nothing. Senator Coachello accused the United States, especially the CIA, of deliberately destroying the island as to nullify any larger claims Mexico would have in the Gulf. A month before Senator's voice was permanently silenced in the fatal car crash in 1998, the U.S. and Mexican Mexico signed the Clinton Dale Treaty, which was heavily influenced by big American oil companies. The pursuing of the Gulf of Mexico to economic zones was complete. The Clinton Dale Treaty ignored its possible existence of Isla Bahama and thus awarded the United States a lion's share of the resources of the region. Is that island called is the island called Isla Bahama a real place? Was it once real and now gone? Was it something misdescribed, or was it reported to be in the wrong place? The search for truth begins in Florence, Italy. As the architectural devil Stato in these archives, these visits a map dating back to 1335, drawn by Caspar Villegas, a Portuguese cartographer. <coughs> On a map, there is clear indication that the island exists in the Gulf of Mexico called Prehima, which it which in older Iberian dialects means reddish in color. On this map and others, this island was supposedly located at 22 degrees, 33 minutes north latitude, and 21 degrees, 22 minutes west latitude. Brigham next appears in 15, 1544, mapped by Sebastian Capot, the Italian explorer who sailed for England and charted many areas of North America. The map was printed in Antwerp and clearly shows Brigham along 
a small group of islands to the east of it called Negros. Over the centuries, like Isla Brahima, the series of about six small coral islets and rocks known as Negros will appear and disappear. To this day, the existence of the small chain of islands is in dispute. Kibbutz Kibbutz map was especially useful for his English overlords who carried piracy in the Caribbean and the Gulf of Mexico. As a consequence, Alan Brahima was also known as a hiding place for English and Dutch buccaneers who would attack Spanish ships and disrupt commerce in the area. At this time, it has been described as a lightly wooded island measuring only roughly 80 square kilometers of abundant bird life. Dowlin first appears in 1772 in a compressed map of New Spain by Alcite and Ramirez near either Brima nor the tiny islands of Negritos are present. A few years after the publication of this map, official cartographers of the Spanish crown, Miguel de Aldrich and Andreas Balaroma, sought to prove the existence of islands rumored to be north of the Yucatan and hundreds of miles into the Gulf. From Aldrich's diary of July of, 19, of 1775, he writes, <coughs> We sailed for Havana, trying to locate Brahima and other islands. When you arrived at the location of the Brahima, even though the visibility was clear and the sea calm, we didn't discover anything, not a spot, not a mark, nor existence nor variance in color, nothing. In the 19th and earliest 20th centuries, Alabrima was brilliantly shown on maps that were officially or edited by or under the supervision of the Mexican government, but no maritime verification was known to have been carried out in the region during this time. The existence of the island is registered in 1864 Ethnographic Charter of Mexico, Governmental Edition, and also in a book from Time, called Isla Miscanus, officially published by the Secretary of Public Education. On page 110, the book places the island at 22 degrees 33 minutes north latitude and 91 degrees 22 minutes west. By 1920s, Alan Brahima had been discovered and disappeared from most maps. Officials from Mexico's Ministry of Foreign Affairs even declared for the Mexican Congress that the island has sunk and no longer existed. A Mexican senator at the time, Louis Copala Hoffrey, made statements to the media about the Foreign Affairs Ministry's presentation to the Congress. He said, Although since the, although since the 16th century, the state of Yucatan was included as part of national and international maps since 1920, Isla Brahma is no longer taken into account. As Mexican national territory and at present, physically, its information is not found or hidden by different authorities and governmental entities. The last government printed school book showing Isla Brahma was released in 1946. After that, interest in the island disappeared, it seems, along with the island. It was only during the Clinton administration in the United States during the 1990s, when Mexican national attention focused once again on Alan Brahima and the, the, on the inconsistence of Senator Cochillo 
with the Clinton to deal treaty in force for over a decade, with American oil companies already well established with gigantic platforms in the Gulf on agreed to territory interests in Island Burma resurface, much like an island rising out of the sea. In 2009, there were three formal expeditions to find the island. In addition to the sea expeditions, there have been attempts to locate the island by air and satellite. One notable attempt to locate the island by air was made by the Mexican television network, Televisa, which created a show about Island Bahima that considered the island to be a mystery along the lines of the Bahima Triangle. Indeed, others have noted the existence of ley lines crossing the path of the island, or mysterious vortexes nearby that may cause Alan to pop in and out of existence. Yeah, bro. Go another fucking dimension or something? It's crazy. It's like dead. It's not part of the sick sunk or something. If the island once existed and is indeed now gone, there are many theories to explain its disappearance. From rising sea levels due to global warming. Yeah, that's probably it. To destruction by hurricanes or other natural forces. Yeah, that's possible right there. To Senator Charles theories about sea obliteration of a tiny piece of very valuable Mexican territory. The story of Isla Bahima is not over. On April 4th, 2012, a man named Marco Antonio Salvo Veloso uploaded a five and a half minute video to YouTube about a fishing trip that he and his friends took to Isla Bahima. The island has the reddish tones ample barriers and scrubby trees that were described in the 16th century in part accounts. There were no compass coordinates occupying the video, so there's no way to tell exactly where Salazo actually was, but it seemed like it wasn't his first trip to the island. Whether real or imagined, sunk or destroyed, copying vortexes or blinking out of space and time, Isla Bahima remains a little known but intriguing Mexican mystery. That's great. Oh, if I can find that video real quick. How you guys doing? Sorry, I've been. Okay. I don't know. Whatever. All right. Uh, see you next time. This is like this is the button for the end of the show.
Hey everyone, thank you for listening. I've been Tanner. You've been listening to Coach Corrupted. Check me out on Instagram, Twitter, uh, TikTok. Alright. Your friends for the show. Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.